If you belong to the King, you've been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. Your feet have been planted on the King's highway and He doesn't want you to live and grovel in the gutter of sin. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 6 of our study of the book of Romans, and we've already seen that trusting in Jesus Christ as our sole means of salvation does not give us a license to sin, for to do so is a mark of an insincere faith. But as we move into verses 3 to 11 today, Pastor Brogy begins to look at the change that comes about when the Holy Spirit indwells the life of a new believer. And in our message entitled, How to Really Change, we look at what exactly happens at the time of new birth. Now, last week we just cracked the door in Romans 6, and we saw that the subject of this chapter is slavery, not in chain, but in the human heart. When God spoke of the Messiah in the Old Testament, He said this by the prophet Isaiah. He said, The blind shall receive sight, the lame will walk, the lepers will be cleansed, the deaf will hear, the dead will be raised, the gospel will be be preached to the poor, that liberty to the captives will be proclaimed and freedom will be given to the prisoners. John the Baptist had a public ministry for one year, and then he found himself in prison. He found himself in prison for preaching the truth, for telling the people what was right. And when he dealt with Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, who had uh, his wife divorce his brother, Philip, so he could marry her, John said, that's an evil. And Herod didn't like that message, so he threw him in prison. And he's languishing in prison one day, and some of his disciples come and speak on John's behalf, and the Lord Jesus quotes what the prophet Isaiah says. Well, what does he mean when he says he came to set the captives free? to give freedom to the prisoners. Because not only John, a lot of God's people in that day and in this day end in prison for their faith. There's a pastor brother in Iran right now just for preaching the gospel. He's in prison and they want to execute him. It happens more than we realize it. So what does he mean, freedom? Well, freedom in the Bible is not just of the chain, but in the heart. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And our passage deals not with freedom in the sense of getting out of prison, but freedom from the bondage and power of sin in your life. And that's the focus of Romans 6 through 8. He's already dealt with sin's penalty. Now he's going to deal with sin's power. And we saw that there's a difference between our position, our standing, which speaks of justification, how we've been declared righteous. Well, more than being declared righteous, God wants to make you righteous. He wants to shape that righteousness in your life. So justification deals with your position. Sanctification deals with your practice. One is instantaneous. It takes place in the twinkling of an eye in a split second. 
when you are delivered out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son and you are born again. But sanctification is a lifelong process that is to continue. And so one deals with sin's penalty. Our text this morning, all the way through the end of 8, deals with sin's power. We want to begin reading in verse 3 where we left off. Follow along in your Bibles. Paul asks, or do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we should also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now last time, again, we just looked at verses 1 and 2. But let me bring you into the context. My desire is that by the time we are finished with Romans, you can think your way all the way through the book, chapter by chapter. We've seen the first section is doctrinal in context, dealing with three major doctrines after his introduction. So beginning in 118 all the way through 320, he deals with the doctrine of condemnation. It's a very dismal, dark, despairing portion of scripture, but Paul knows that we need it because he knows before you can get a man saved, you first have to get him lost. And he's helping the church at Rome to be able to reason with every false premise an unbeliever may have as to why he does not need Christ. But when you come to chapter 3 and verse 21, the first two words are, but now. It's like a breath of fresh air. And from 320 all the way through the end of chapter 5, he deals with the doctrine of being saved by grace alone through faith alone. And if you remember in 5.20, if you look down in the text, he says where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Now that would cause his critics to say, okay, Paul, if this is the way the grace of God operates, if where sin abounds, grace increases, then your doctrine of free grace encourages lawlessness. And so in anticipation of his critics, Paul asks a question here in 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? People in Paul's day attack the doctrine of being saved by grace alone through faith alone, and they do so in our day as well. They say, you people who teach that good works do not save that they are simply the fruit and evidence of salvation. You people who teach once saved, always saved, you're telling people that they can have the best of both worlds, that they can be saved and secured for heaven and then live however they want to live. And people who think that way say, well, if I believe that, I would sin all I want to. And Paul says, no, you wouldn't. Because the grace of God puts you on a new plane. It makes you a new person. And it instructs you to do just the opposite. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Now remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. They're helpful, but they're artificial. But they can be distracting because remember, one chapter flows directly into the next. And in chapter 6, 
the questions you are asking flow naturally out of the statement that he's made at the end of the fifth chapter. If abounding grace is produced in abounding sin, are we to conclude that we should sin more, that we might find more grace? And again, this was not just a problem in his day, it's a problem in our day. The reformers during the time of the Protestant Reformation were accused by Roman Catholics as being antinomian. We saw that the word antinomian, anti meaning against, nomos, law means against the law. And so there are antinomians in our day. They believe in antinomianism, that once you're saved, you can live however you want. As a pastor, you're called often to do funerals. I have two this week in front of me. And sometimes when you do a funeral, you know the person, you know they loved Christ, their life had been dramatically changed. But sometimes, you know, you'll get a call and a family calls you and they don't, they don't even have a church. You wonder where some of these folks are and they'll say, well, you know, he was saved, Pastor, when he was 12. He lived like the devil his whole life, but he was saved. Praise the Lord. I hope so. I hope so. There are people who think you can be saved by grace and live however you want. That's antinomianism. And so they take Paul's statement and they twist it and they turn it. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Sin grew higher, but grace mounted all the higher. More sin, more grace. Greater sin, greater grace. So what are you going to say to that, Paul? Because you're teaching us to sin, and Paul's going to blow their argument out of the saddle before we're done with the sixth chapter. He initially responds, responds may it never be. May genoita. It's a very emotional statement, and it's hard to capture with a single English phrase. That's why almost every single English translation translates it differently. Absolutely not, one says. Of course not, by no means. Not at all, perish the thought. Another says, don't be ridiculous. Then the paraphrases come in. No, we should not. The Living Bible says, of course not. The Philip says, what a ghastly thought. Now notice carefully the end of verse two. May it never be, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Shall we sin that grace may increase? Not on your life, Paul says. That is a perversion of the grace of God. In Jude's words, it's turning the grace of God into licentiousness. Grace does not mean I'm free to do whatever I want to do. That's not salvation. When Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, real freedom is the not doing whatever you want to do. It's the ability to do that which you ought to do. And so how shall we who died to sin still live in it? He's saying, have you forgotten that you've died to sin? You don't want to go around sinning every chance you get because you've died to sin. And we saw last week the emphasis of the Greek verbs or how shall we, we of all people, still live in sin? If you belong to the king, you've been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's son. Your feet have been planted on the king's highway and he doesn't want you to live and grovel in the gutter of sin. And so... Paul's making it very clear to us in the verses that will unfold this morning how it is that we live under this new reign, under this new master. 
Now, if you want to take notes, we're going to see here in the next few weeks that there are three key words that we must understand. We're going to look at a couple of them today. The first deals with our new realization. Our new realization. Now that you've been saved from the penalty of sin, Paul is going to begin to explain to us how it is that we can be saved from the power of sin so that it can be experienced. The very first word that we need to brace ourselves with, you might want to circle it or underline it, it's the word know. Verse 3 begins, or do you not know? He does not say, or do you not feel, or do you not experience, but do you not know? There is something in your mind that you must realize, that you must know, some very important information. He's going to repeat it in verse 6 with the word knowing, and again in verse 9 with the word knowing. You need to realize that there's something you need to know if you've been saved. Now, here's the problem. When you get saved, you get a new nature, a new capacity to live righteously that you didn't have before you were saved. However, when you become a Christian, you still have the fallen Adamic nature within. As we saw in chapter 5, it's not reigning over you anymore. You still have it. Its right to rule and reign over you has been broken. It was lost at the cross. It no longer has authority over you. But in practice, for a lot of believers, it seems like it has more authority over them than not. And so the question we have to ask is, how is it, if Christ has broken the reign of sin, the authority of sin in my life, how is it that I experience that new freedom that he has come to give me? Last week, we looked at the Emancipation Proclamation that Abraham Lincoln wrote on January 1st, 1863. And there are people in that section of the country where he wrote it who were immediately beginning to experience it. But in Texas, it wasn't until June 19th, 1863, that the slaves left the plantations because it took that long for the information to get there to the state of Texas. They didn't know about it. That's Paul's point. There is something you must know if you're going to experience the freedom that God has for you. Or do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now, I can't overlook this verse because this verse and the next one is used all the time to teach that baptism saves. And if you've been with us in our study of the book of Romans, you know that's a total impossibility in Paul's theology. Because baptism is a work and we're not saved by any works. Now the word baptize is not so much translated as it is transliterated from Greek into English. The original is baptizo. And even if you don't read Greek, if you read your Bible carefully, it becomes apparent to you that the word can have both a literal and a figurative meaning. Now, it's a rather religious word in our day, but it wasn't necessarily in the first century. If I had a piece of white cloth and I wanted to dye it purple, then I would baptize it. The word's primary literal meaning meant to immerse. I would immerse it in purple dye. Now, sometimes people will come into my office and they'll say, well, pastor, I was baptized as an infant. Should I be baptized now that I've received Christ? And I said, well, I'll say to them, you really weren't baptized not even as an infant. Now, we call it that to describe what happened to us as an infant, but the Bible would never call it that. Unless, of course, someone took a little infant 
and totally immerse the infant in water, something that folks don't do. No, we sprinkle a little water on them. And there's a beautiful Greek word in the New Testament that describes sprinkling. It's ratizo. They were ratizoed, but they weren't baptizoed, if I can anglicize that a little bit. So it can have a literal meaning to immerse, to submerge, but it can also have a figurative meaning. That's obvious to you in 1 Corinthians 10 too. Paul is speaking of the children of Israel, and he says they were all baptized into Moses, in the cloud and in the sea. It says they were baptized into Moses. Remember when they walked through the Red Sea and there were walls of water on each side and they walked through on dry ground, they didn't get a drop on them. So in what sense were they baptized? Well, obviously, they weren't baptized in the sense that they were in water, but they were identified with Moses. And so the secondary figurative meaning means to be identified with. When you take that piece of white cloth and you immerse it, it is then identified with the purple dye. And they were identified with the leadership of Moses as he led them through the Red Sea. And so when Paul says here in verse 3 that you were baptized into Christ Jesus, please understand there's no water here. The simplest definition of a Christian in the New Testament is the word in Christ, the phrase in Christ. All the way through Ephesians 1, it says the believer is in Christ. If this Bible is me and this watch is, if this Bible is Christ and this watch is me, I am in Christ this morning. So when God sees Carl Brogy, he doesn't see the watch, he sees Christ's righteousness. And that's why in the New Testament, every Christian, even the weakest ones, are called saints. Because again, it speaks of our position. And this morning, you're either in Christ, been declared, justified as righteous, or you're outside of Christ in your own sin and impurity. And if Christ finds you that way at death or at his return, you will become forever that way in the place of judgment. And so it's not water that puts you into Christ. It is the Spirit of God that puts you into Christ. Put down next to verse 3, if you would, in the margin, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, let me read it to you. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one Spirit. This is called the baptism of the Spirit. And again, every Christian has had it. Every Christian has been baptized with the Spirit. In early Pentecostalism, they wrongly taught that first you're saved and later you get the Holy Spirit. No, that's not true. The epistles are very clear. That was true in Acts in the upper room because the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. But by the time you come to the epistles, the moment you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. So when we come to the eighth chapter, he says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not even saved. You're not one of his. And if you know anything about the Corinthian church, again, the Pentecostals would say, well, you reach this super place of spirituality and then you get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You know, anything about the Christian church in Corinth, it wasn't a very healthy church. There was a lot of Christians that were marked by carnality and worldliness. And yet he says, we were all baptized, done deal, past tense, into one body. And so the Holy Spirit of God is the one who identifies you into the body of Christ. Now, many times in Scripture, baptism has nothing to do with water. John the Baptist will speak of the baptism of fire, which is a baptism of judgment in the context. And he'll also speak of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, 
which is a baptism of salvation, and you're in one of those two baptisms. You are either by nature still a child of God, so that John 3 can say, he who believes has life. He who does not believe, the wrath of God abides upon him. And if he dies in that state, he experiences the baptism of fire, or you've had the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which Christ gives when you believe. And so many times, water is not even in view. But I think most of you understand that neither a thimbleful or a tankful or an oceanful can ever wash away sin. In Matthew 3.15, we're told that baptism is a work of righteousness. And in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, it says we're saved not by works done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.15 says the gospel is that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. Three words summarize the gospel, death, burial, and resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, which clearly separates baptism from the gospel. That's important because as we studied in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, notice Romans 6.3, not only have we been baptized into Christ Jesus, but in addition, we've been baptized into his death. Of course, the death he's referring to here is the death of Christ on Calvary. Our baptism into Christ's death took place the moment we received him as our Savior. The Spirit of God made us members of his body. And so the New Testament argues that what is true of the Lord Jesus is true of the believer. That you are totally identified with Jesus Christ. Now, if you go to Jerusalem, and we were there not long ago, uh, you'll see all kinds of religious sites. And there in Israel, one famous site is along the Jordan River where people get baptized. And we baptized several people there on our last trip to Israel. If you'll bring that picture up, uh, this is a wall called the Wall of Life. And on it, there at the Jordan River, they have Romans 6.4. Quoted in language after language after language. All the languages of the world. And people come and they read their languages. Now that verse means different things to different people. To Roman Catholics, to the Church of Christ, to the Disciples of Christ, to the Christian Church denomination. It's a salvation verse. To other people, it's symbolic of, of their spirit baptism. As seen in water baptism. But the verse has no water in it whatsoever. It's a good verse, and it's not a bad verse to quote at baptism because water baptism by immersion, and again, only immersion can picture death, burial, and resurrection. If you were sprinkled, you weren't baptized. If I die, I hope the elders won't drag me out into the field and sprinkle a little soil over me. I want them to put me six feet under. Only immersion can picture death and resurrection. And so, when Christ died, you died. When Christ was buried, you were buried. When Christ was raised, you were raised. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, it has you seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Why? Because as a member of his body, brought you, brought into that body when you believed by the Holy Spirit, you were linked inseparably to Christ. Everything that is true of him is true of you. And so there's no water in this. And I, I spend the time on it because the verse is abused all the time. 
and sometimes our military will leave and they'll call me and they'll say, Pastor, I'm in such and such a city and I went to such and such a church. And sometimes the name gives it away, Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, such and such Christian church. Not always, there's exceptions to the rule. And we'll go online together and we'll look at their doctrinal statement. And when on their doctrinal statement for salvation... They have verses like Romans 6.4 or Acts 2.38, then I know they're teaching salvation by baptism. Baptism cannot wash away sin. That's the Galatian error. People say, well, repent, believe, confess, be baptized. That's what they'll say the plan of salvation is. And so if you don't meet that last one, baptized, then you're not saved. That's heresy. That's the Galatian error. That's what Paul dealt with in the Galatian church where they said it was not enough to believe on Christ and Christ alone. In addition, you have to do this one work. You have to be circumcised. People do the same thing today. They had just one work, baptism. And the Bible is clear. God either saves you all alone, all by himself, without any help from you, or he does not save you at all. And so we read here in verse 4, keep reading. Therefore, we have been buried with him, through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now remember, there are three tenses to salvation in the New Testament. I've been saved in the past from the penalty of sin. That's called what? Justification. I am being saved in the presence from the power of sin. What's that called? Sanctification. I will be saved when I get my glorified body from the very presence of sin. What's that called? Glorification. So between the past point and the future point, there's this process called sanctification where God is making us like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul wants us to understand that right now, in the present, God wants you to be saved from sin's power, from sin's control. That we, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life. Now, there are two different words in the Greek New Testament that are translated new. One is new in terms of time, like a new day. The other word new, used here in this verse, is new in terms of character or in terms of quality. And so the Bible teaches that when you get saved, you get a new heart. That you are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5. That you are a new creature, Galatians 6 that you have a new self, Ephesians 4, and in this verse, that you can walk in newness of life. When you get saved, God doesn't simply give you a brand new start. He gives you a brand new life so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. He further explains here in verse 5, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his, re- in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. This verse is telling me why we can walk in this newness of life. If we are one with the Lord Jesus Christ, identified with him in his death, then it is equally true that we are one with him, identified in his resurrection. Now, of course, before you can have new life, you have to experience death. And if there's never been a point in your life where this world, in all of its wickedness and sin, has become distasteful to you, then you will never find new life. To listen again to today's study from Romans 6, entitled, How to Really Change, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, 
or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Of course, you can always order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and request program ROM28. Tomorrow, we continue our look at how to really change. Join us then as we search the scriptures.